0: Welcome to Modern Dogma, a Christian considering today's ideas. What is the Christian's relation to his or her government? Speaking as a citizen of the United States, I think this question feels particularly tricky for us Americans because America has a unique system of governance that I believe naturally pushes our society towards a hyper-politicization. We'll elaborate on that later, but what I mean by that is I think America being founded as a democratic republic naturally causes its citizens to adopt a way of viewing the entire world through the lens of politics. Now, this is a total farce. A political ideology cannot be your starting point. That is a wrong presupposition. It's a wrong worldview. Frankly, it's making a political ideology your religion. That is what it means when you adopt something as your starting presupposition. We talked about this in greater detail in Politics Part 1, Episode 5. Remember? How the world has deceived many Christians into reframing questions of moral truth into so called political issues. That shifting of the way we think about issues like immigration, national security, gender identity, and claiming that these are a special class of moral questions that we can't bring religion into, these are public sphere type issues that require some kind of neutral, a-religious way of thinking to address is just total nonsense. Politics in itself is a ruse. Everyone is biased. Everyone has to bring their worldview into weighing in on so-called political issues. But that being said, that is the state of the United States. Everyone sees everything through the lens of politics. Everything is political. And I think that is naturally what happens in any kind of democracy. When the people feel that they are in charge, they, to one degree or another, will feel like they have to think about politics all the time. Everything in the world becomes politics. Every important issue is politics. And I think, to a certain extent, it's understandable how this way of thinking happens. So most of us serve as a mere employee of some business owned by somebody else. Someone else takes on the risks of the business. Someone else has to think about the decision-making processes. You're just in a little cubicle, you're just doing your own little job on an island, you clock in, clock out, you go home, and you're not thinking about work. But imagine you are the business owner. Suddenly, the way you view the entire enterprise is completely different. Now, it's your livelihood that is at stake based on decisions you have to make. Decisions as trivial as how many plies a toilet paper has and what kind of donuts you provide in the break room. You're forced into thinking about the smallest details because suddenly such little decisions make real impacts on your life. It's your business. It's your money going down the toilet when you need to replace the carpet. You obsess over every little detail in the business because you feel the weight of the fact that you are in charge. And I think in part This is the kind of attitude that naturally develops to a certain extent in a democracy. Now, America isn't exactly a democracy, I know. We're a democratic republic, but we're a kind of democracy. We're a kind of nation where the individual citizens are told we hold a very real stake in the direction of the country. We the people. And I think... And this is all theoretical. I've never lived under a king or a dictator or any other type of government, okay? But I suspect that in democracies, people tend to take on a business owner mentality. We are in charge. This is our government, our country. We are at least partly responsible for the direction of our nation. And I think that creates a natural drift toward hyper-politicization. We as a citizenry will naturally tend to obsess over politics which is really an obsession over national governance, because we think we own the place. It's our business. It's our livelihood. It's our children's future. So this was just a long way of saying that thinking biblically about the topic of government in particular, I think can feel tricky for us Americans because we will bring very strongly held, uniquely democratic American biases towards the issue of government. I suspect it will feel particularly personal to us compared to maybe someone living under a monarch. I could be wrong, though. Again, just speaking theoretically. But the most famous text when it comes to the question of the Christian's relation to government is undoubtedly Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, this is not the only text that addresses this issue, and in fact, it is very poor practice when attempting to think biblically for us to get tunnel-visioned and only consider one singular passage when answering any important life question. Scripture is not written like a recipe book where it goes, oh, just turn to chapter so-and-so when it comes to the question of evangelism, and all the evangelism stuff is just self-contained, nice and neat, right there in that chapter. Oh, and then turn to this other chapter whenever you come to a question of deacons. All the deacon stuff is right there. Don't worry about any other page. This is the deacon chapter. It's instructive in itself that God did not write the Bible that way. For some believers, maybe particularly ones that tend to be very neat and tidy, organized kind of people, we may be tempted to feel frustrated and think, why didn't God just neatly index all his teachings into nice, clean little categories? Why isn't there like a table of contents? Why was revelation given to us in such a seemingly messy way? Now, I phrase it that way, that we may feel tempted to feel that way, because, of course, Anytime you start to venture down a path where you start grumbling about God's word, the problem is obviously with you. God knows better than us. You can't out-teach God. We can't out-organize God. As I said, it's instructive how God chose to reveal divine information. And if I had to hazard a guess, and this is just a guess... I suspect part of the reason the Lord did not give us basically a systematic theology is because He did not want us to treat Scripture like my analogy, like a cookbook. It's not a recipe book. It's the living, breathing, actually speaking words of God. God is literally talking to us when we read Scripture. It's not a reference manual. You are communing with God. You're literally hearing the Heavenly Father converse with you when you crack open Deuteronomy or 1 Corinthians. It's not a medical dictionary or a car manual. And closely related to that, God's Word, the Bible, must be viewed in a holistic fashion. So, all that to say, Romans 13, 1-7 is a fine place to start, and it will be the focus of our attention in today's episode. But I just want to state that all the rest of Scripture should always be kept in our peripheral vision. I think that's the way I would put it. So, not tunnel-visioned, not just Romans 13, and you don't think about or see anything else, but we focus on Romans 13 to tackle a specific question, but we should always have in our periphery the full counsel of God. Now, let's get into Romans 13, 1-7. I'm not gonna read the passage out loud. You guys can do that on your own. Go ahead and pause right now if you want to grab a Bible, but I'm just going to assume you have a working knowledge of the text and jump right in. There are a number of important insights that can be gleaned from this otherwise very small paragraph in Romans 13, 1-7. However, I want to draw out just three exegetical points. Exegetical meaning, These are points that are not a matter of my opinion or applicational. These are just three straight points of interpretation, in other words, that come straight out of what we're reading. That's always where you start when handling the Bible. You start with an understanding of what the text itself is saying. None of us do it perfectly, but we should strive to just leave behind our biases and lenses. Just look at the literal words found in the text. Use a trustworthy word-for-word translation, obviously. I like the English Standard Version. But just observe what's there first. Don't jump straight into opining. You don't need to hear what I think, at least not at the start. What does God's word itself say? That's where we begin. Well, the first exegetical point I would submit is to observe how government authorities are identified. The label they are given. And they are labeled as servants of God. You see that repeated twice in verse 4, that governing rulers are, quote, God's servant for your good. And again, these rulers, quote, He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath, end quote. And then a third time in verse 6, the authorities are called, quote, ministers of God, a very similar title that carries the same idea. And that idea is the fact that our nation's leaders derive their authority straight from the divine, Now, we need to plant on that for a second because that is an amazing statement. Because you know who else are called servants of God? Christians! Us believers that willingly bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who declare Jesus our master and king and we go to church and believe in the gospel, we share the same title in this sense as some corrupt, God-blaspheming, church-persecuting government official. We are actually fellow servants of God. In fact, that text is explicit that we Christians, local churches, we are to strive to be working with government. Our governor, our senators, our president, the Lord is emphatic that they are his servants for our good, as it states at the beginning of verse 4. They are meant to be a benefit to us. So before we go any further into trying to answer the question, how am I supposed to relate to the government as a Christian, we need to start with a recognition that we are in a sense, amazingly called to co-labor with government, not live in antagonism. At the high level of principle, the church and state are supposed to be functioning in cooperation. And that is because the same divine authority mandates the existence of both. Government and the church exist by God's decree. We serve the same master. Now, once again, that is amazing. And that requires eyes of faith to trust. Because unlike the church, a government official is not automatically imbued with the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? Not every government official claims to serve King Jesus. Now, they do. (laughs) Whether or not they know it, they are God's servant. That's the point of Romans 13. But what I'm drawing attention to is the fact that it is significant that most government officials do not voluntarily serve God. And yet, they are considered God's servants, God's instruments. Let me put it that way we Christians that genuinely love Jesus from the heart and the godless, blaspheming government official probably a Democrat, right? Just kidding. Not really. We are both considered God's instruments that perform His explicit will. So any conceptual theological framework to understand the Christian's relation to government that puts the church and state in opposition, your starting point is already wrong. This is one of the many reasons, by the way, Why, though I have a lot of policy-level overlaps with the political ideology of libertarianism on its surface, you know, I carry a lot of the same political prescriptions of limited government, the importance of individual liberty, I would insist it is unbiblical to hold to libertarianism, especially what I would consider the purest form of libertarianism, the anarcho-capitalist variety, because anarcho-capitalist libertarianism puts the state and the individual Christian in opposition against each other. That is flat-out contradicted by Scripture here in Romans 13.1. A distinct entity called the state exists. The state is instituted by God. The state, as a concept, is good and meant to be a benefit, and furthermore, the state wields God's power. Now, what is that power used for? We arrive at our second point in the text, which is, that the government official is tasked with promoting good and punishing evil, to put it as simply as possible. Verse 3 puts it this way, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, government rulers are meant to terrify evildoers. That's the point. Some people hate the terror that government can sometimes put into the hearts of men. People hate the idea of getting audited by the IRS or getting sent a letter by the FCC for pirating a movie. And human beings, with the classic overinflated sense of self-importance, naturally think, according to their sinful flesh, nobody has the right to make me feel scared. Nobody has the right to threaten me. Uh, yeah, God does. God has every right to make you afraid, and you should be afraid. And God has explicitly given the power of divine fear to government leaders. We should be afraid to break the law. It's so controversial today. People, don't read too much into what I'm about to say, okay? Just take what I'm about to say at face value. Don't put anything else into the following sentence, okay? But guess what? You're supposed to be afraid of cops if you are sinning, okay? That's the point of law enforcement and government officials. Now, what did I say? I said, if you are sinning, if you are breaking the law, cops are supposed to be scary. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But there are these anarchist ideas in the US today that take the fear of government and automatically assume it's always bad the ideas being espoused by Antifa, and the ridiculous defund the police movement, let's be very clear, it stems in large part from the ungodly attitude of autonomy. No one tells me what to do. No one can make me feel scared of punishment. I can live however I want. I am God, in other words. I am the sovereign. No one before me. I get to make the laws of my universe. That's all it is. This isn't about systemic injustice. It's the same lie as the serpent in the garden. No one gets to tell me what to do. It's spiritual teenage angst. Dad, don't tell me what to do. It's that whiny and obnoxious. That is what anti-government sentiment is at its core. And it is a lie because God is clear in his word that government officials have the right to strike terror in the hearts of evildoers. Now, you guys realize I'm talking in generalities right now, right? We spoke a little in episode 14 about the analogy of being 10,000 feet in the air and looking at an entire forest and being on the ground and looking at individual trees. This is a forest statement. This entire discussion is truth spoken in the context of the general. So don't rebut with, yeah, but how about this one individual dictator? How about Hitler? How about this one crooked cop, this crooked judge I know? That's a separate conversation. I'm not talking about specifics. I'm talking about the general concept of government because that is Paul's context here in Romans 13. Government as a general concept is designed by God, meant for our good, to punish evil. That is true as a forest-level statement, a general statement. In fact, the government ruler also performs the inverse. He terrifies the evildoer, but then he gives approval or rewards the one who performs righteousness. Disincentives for crime, incentives for being a good citizen. And we see that today with things like tax benefits for marriage and having children. It is a good thing to marry and have kids. It is a net positive for the world. And even secular society, for the most part, recognizes that. Look, the world needs to continue existing until Jesus returns. And especially from a Christian perspective, if unbelieving parents are going to keep having children and raising them to hate God and influencing society towards blaspheming the Lord, we need to keep having children and raising them to love God and take every thought captive, right? The church needs to continue existing after our 90-year-olds die, right? And no one said raising children is easy. It's not. It's super hard. But somebody needs to do it. History needs to go on. And even the world understands that. Our developed nations have a serious demographic problem. We're not having enough kids. Policymakers are desperate to produce more productive young people. One of the structurally broken things about our economy is we just aren't replacing our population fast enough. And it's in light of this that our government leaders represent the Lord by rewarding, through tax incentives, household formations. That's precisely the role government plays as God's minister. And that brings us to the third and final exegetical point from this passage, and that is the fact that in light of the truth that the government official is God's servant, in light of the truth that the government official serves God by punishing evil and rewarding good, the manner in which we Christians ought to relate to the government official is via submission. Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to, The governing authorities. Now, let's elaborate on this last point because I think there are two very common misconceptions here that I think would be avoided if we were a little more careful in how we read this very famous passage. And again, that is why you always start your opinion forming by just straight, simple exegesis, just looking at the literal words in a good English translation and start from there. Don't start with a political ideology. That's what I was saying at the beginning. That's easy to do as a hyper-politicized American, but don't start with a political assumption. Don't start with some man-made framework or worldview. Just start with observing. What words are on the page and what do the words mean? That's exegesis. That's biblical interpretation. The first misconception is, please note, It matters what word the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, selected to describe our relation to government. And that word is submission. And please note, the word submission is not the word obedience. As far as I can tell, we are nowhere called to flatly obey our earthly governments in any verse throughout Holy Scripture. Now, what is telling is that the author of Romans, the Apostle Paul, does not shy away from the concept of obedience. He has no problems using that word. He tells us to obey certain authorities all the time. Ephesians six one quote: "Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right." Again, Colossians three twenty: "Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord." Paul wrote both of the sentences. When it comes to the relationship between parent and child, it's very stark. Listen, kid, obey your mom and dad. No negotiations. They say, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. They say, do your homework, you do your homework. They say, you're coming with us to church on Sundays, you're coming to church. If you're under their roof, if you're dependent on them, mom and dad is the law of the land. Pretty simple. Also, the relationship between God and man, quote, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5, also written by Paul. Or let's just stick to the very same letter we're reading right now Romans chapter 1, verse 5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So, akin to an earthly father and the child, when it comes to the heavenly father and us, the call is simple and clear and non-negotiable. We must obey. It is what is best for the earthly child that knows so little. They don't even know what they don't know. And it is best and safest, certainly, for us when we unwaveringly obey the Creator. He always knows best. We do not. But what is fascinating is the language of obedience, the very word obedience, is not uttered when it comes to the relationship between Christian citizen and the government ruler. It's not there. And that is for the very obvious reason that obedience is not the same thing as submission. The Holy Spirit goes out of His way to not call our relation to the state as obedience because to obey government is not the same thing as submitting to government. They are not interchangeable terms, in other words. So what does submission mean and how is it distinct from blanket obedience? Now, before I go any further, let me just nip this in the bud right away. Godly submission to the government will look like obedience like 95% of the time if I had to put a percentage to it, okay? If you are fulfilling God's will for your life to be submitting to your governor, mayor, congressman, judge, police officer, etc., it will look identical to obedience most of the time. Or put it another way, obedience is the way you will fulfill God's command to submit the vast majority of the time. Now, again, they're not the same thing. They are distinct. We'll explain how in a second, but they will look the same most of the time. All right. And I say that because I know somebody is going to just selectively listen to this episode and think the conclusion is, oh, okay, great. I'm just going to break whatever law I want to. No, that is not the point. In fact, if you're actually listening you will discover that at the end of this episode, my exhortation is you simply towing the line of the law may not actually be good enough. You can technically stay in the boundaries of the law of your country and you may still be in sin because you are not exemplifying submission. Now, let me explain what I mean. Submission is really a matter of attitude. It's not per se a thing you do on the outside. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of respect, deference, and frankly, love. I mean, look directly at the end of Romans 13, 1-7. Look at verse 7. Paul explains, You need to be subject to, you need to submit to the governing authorities. They're God's servants. They exist for your good. And Paul ends by stating, "Quote: Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And he ends by stating, Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. End quote. In other words, verse 7 is an elaboration on verse 1. Submit to governing authorities. And by the way, here is what submission looks like it's giving respect and honor. And further, look at the immediate following verse. You see, a lot of people just stop at verse 7 and think, okay, these are all the texts related to government. Now we move on to a new, totally discontinuous topic. No, 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 not so fast. This is all connected. Don't be fooled by the little headings your Bible publisher put into the text. Those don't exist in the original text. There isn't a wall between verse 7 and 8. Look at verse 8, because Paul continues to elaborate on explaining what subjection, what submission really is. Quote, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And why? What does love have to do with anything? What does love have to do with government? Quote, For the one who loves another has fulfilled all the law. Now, to be clear, the law that Paul is referring to here primarily is a reference to God's law. And God's law is perfectly encapsulated in the Bible. So we're not talking about the law of your state or your county or nation. To be fair, we're not discussing man's law. However, what do we just discover? We discovered a principle that submission to a law, true fulfillment of the law, is epitomized by the heart attitude of love. And that applies directly to the question at hand. So, in sum, what is submission? Well, drawing directly from this passage in Romans 13, let me just summarize. God calls Christians to submit to our government authorities and to submit means to respect, honor, and love our government authorities. That's what submission means. That's what submission looks like. That's what submission to God and God's law looks like, and we are called to submit in like fashion to God's appointed servants, state leaders. Now, why is it important to distinguish between blanket obedience to every jot and tittle of man's law versus owing our government authorities' respect, honor, and love? That is to say, submission. Well, you already know the main answer, right? It's because government officials sometimes get it wrong. Sometimes they get it terribly wrong. Sometimes our governments pass laws that promote evil rather than good. Sometimes our judges make rulings that blaspheme God and make a mockery of justice. Sometimes our police officers abuse their power. Imagine if scripture told us we had to obey every single word uttered by a government employee. Imagine the chaos. And that's in America, still, relatively speaking, one of the freest countries in world history. We haven't even touched on some of the really bad regimes. Now, many theologians out there actually interpret Romans 13.1 as obedience and think being subject to someone means you have to follow everything they say to the letter no matter what unconditionally. And the way they try to deconflict the contradiction that would naturally arise where a government leader gives an immoral law is by selectively appealing to Acts 5.29, which states, we must obey God rather than man. In other words, they insert an asterisk into Romans 13:1 and read it like this, quote, "Obey your government all the time," asterisk, "except when obedience to government conflicts with obedience to God." Now, I'm sympathetic to why brethren want to do that. But the glaring problem is that that asterisk simply doesn't exist. It's an error known as eisegesis. In other words, you're artificially reading into God's word something you want to see. That simply isn't there. That's a huge no-no. Read Revelation 22, verse 18, and see what God thinks about adding to His Word. And people appeal to uh, the the analogy of faith. We should be harmonizing all of Scripture. Didn't you yourself just say we should keep other Scripture passages in our peripheral vision? Yes, I'm all for what is known as the analogy of faith, which is basically a fancy term for saying after you come up with your initial interpretation of some passage in some letter or book of the Bible— Go look at the other letters and books of the Bible to double-check your work. But notice the operating word, after your initial interpretation. You don't immediately jump to another passage in a totally different book by a totally different author in order to control your interpretation of the present passage. That is a very sneaky form of eisegesis. You can't use Acts 5 to force Romans 13 to say something that you want it to say. And I say that it is a sneaky form of mishandling the Bible because you're tempted to think what's the harm? Acts 5 and Romans 13 are both God's Word. Yes, but Romans 13 still has a self contained truth. It doesn't need its meaning massaged into something artificial by another passage. Start by dealing with Romans 13 by itself, then go to Acts 5 and other books of the Bible to double check. That's how you use the analogy of faith. It's a tool for verification. It's not a tool for interpretation. The simpler solution to Romans 13.1, rather than adding an artificial asterisk, is to recognize that Paul and the Holy Spirit knew what they were doing when they commanded us to submit to our civil leaders, and that is to acknowledge that we are not technically obligated to obey every jot and tittle of state law. And from a historical, redemptive, biblical theology perspective, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. God sent a Savior to liberate us from God's old covenant law, which was, in fact, a perfect law. There was nothing wrong with God's law according to Romans 7.12. It was righteous. It was pure. And yet, it condemned us of sin because we would always woefully fall short of its standard. So God sent His Son to free us from His good law, only to then place us under strict bondage to man's imperfect, sometimes evil law? That makes no sense. Obviously, that cannot be what Romans 13 is stating. Rather, God is calling us to live in a manner that exudes respect, honor, and love toward our rulers. That is the cardinal rule. So let me revisit my caveat. When you're in a situation face-to-face with secular law and you're trying to answer the question, how do I conduct myself in a manner that shows respect, honor, and love toward government rulers? The answer most of the time is obey the law, right? the vast majority of the time you show respect to the state authority by listening to the state authority, right? He or she says, don't take tax deductions you shouldn't take. Then don't take tax deductions you shouldn't take. Simple. Or the governor says, don't run people over with your car. Okay. Don't run people over with your car. There you go. I'm showing love and honor. But here's the important point. What happens when your government says, thou shalt not proselytize to your coworkers? And lo and behold, What does the Holy God command us in Matthew 28, 19? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The government just gave an unjust law. Make no mistake, it's an evil law. How do we submit to the government in such a scenario? How do we show respect, honor, and love when we're being told it is illegal for you, Christian, to obey your God? I would argue That it is possible to simultaneously submit to our government while disobeying our government. That's what so many people miss. So let me illustrate very tangibly what that looks like. If your government official knocks on your door and says, hey, stop evangelizing, stop proselytizing, whatever dumb word they want to use. They're the same thing. Hey, stop sharing the gospel, in other words, to people at work. If you then respond... By flipping them the bird, threatening to sue them to kingdom come, take a photo of them and dox them, post it to your social media with a huge, irate, expletive-laced rant about your constitutional rights, and then slam the door in the government official's face, you have violated Romans 13.1, ironically, while thinking you were upholding Matthew 28.19. Now, let's rewind. Mr. Government tells you, no evangelizing. If you respond by stating, I appreciate you taking the time to visit, I hear what you are saying. I know you're just doing your job, or you think you're doing your job. I respect you. I want to live a quiet life and not cause you any trouble, but I cannot abide by this law because I answer to a higher authority. I'm willing to take the consequences for my decision. You are submitting to your government even while you are disobeying. You see? Because submission is ultimately a heart attitude of respect, honor, and love. In other words, it is possible to respectfully honorably and lovingly disobey someone, right? You can graciously disagree. It's speaking love and truth, Ephesians 4.15. You can do both. And by the way, this entire thing we just covered, this is exactly the same relation between husband and wife. That's another sticky point for Christians. How can the Bible call women to always need to obey their pig-headed husbands? That's because the Bible never says wives need to always obey their husbands. Wives like citizens underneath the government, are called to submit to their husbands. Again, it's not the same thing. It's about heart attitude. It's about love and respect. So let's take the opposite side now to further illustrate this point. Remember how I said it's possible to obey the government and not be in submission to the government? It should be obvious now, right? Because technically, towing the line of the law is not good enough. Plenty of people in the world today stay within their technical, legal, constitutional rights and yet they are widely regarded as an obnoxious, troublemaking jerk in the eyes of governing officials. I mean, look at all the billionaires that skirt tax laws. I mean, is it technically legal to pretend like you don't take an income and to constantly move money around different offshore accounts? And technically, my lifestyle is fueled by credit. I have no taxable revenue. I mean, yeah, technically, that's all legal. But is that really the spirit behind your government's tax law? Is that really what the IRS meant for you to do? No. Obviously, the IRS put tax laws in place stating, look, if you're exceptionally well off compared to the rest of the country, can you please take on a little more of the tax burden for the sake of your fellow countrymen? It's about honoring the spirit behind the law that makes you a righteous citizen in God's eyes. It's not about just following the letter. Now. Not to get too much off on a tangent, but are our tax laws for our super rich just in the first place? That's a whole other question. And the quick answer is absolutely not. I mean, I know it's not popular to vouch for the rich, but the Bible says to be impartial, not partial to the rich or the poor. Justice is blind. And people love to talk about systemic injustice, but they never pick the right ones. They never point to the right things as examples of true systemic injustice. Let me just give a preview of a future episode we'll be doing. Our so-called progressive tax laws are one of the premier examples of systemic injustice. It is flatly unbiblical, and you cannot escape it. It's systemic. But returning to the topic, two wrongs don't make a right is my point. Skirting around tax laws and going, hey, I don't make any money. I have no taxable income. I'm not going to pay any taxes while you own 12 homes and a yacht. I mean, give me a break. That's just a blatant disrespect of God's servant, the government. Or how about all the so-called protesting happening in our streets these days? This is a problem I have with political activist Christians and all the protesting. Are you constitutionally allowed to peaceably assemble? Yeah, sure. But the Constitution is not our final authority for ethics. God's word is. There is a technically peaceful assembly that is an eyesore to our government leaders there is a technically constitutional protest that is like noxious fumes in the nostrils of state leaders. And a Christian has no business attaching themselves in the name of Christ to any kind of lawful activity that is nevertheless conducted with an attitude of disrespect towards state officials. Now, again, I'm talking about dishonorable activism. I recognize there can be honorable, respectable political activism. No issues there. I'm talking about the disrespectful ones, whether or not it's legal. And the argument always follows. But look at all the good these obnoxious activists did. Look at all the great laws we pressured the state to pass. Okay, you need to check out episode two on moral relativism and pragmatism. You have such a short-sighted, tunnel-visioned understanding of history. Sin is never the answer. It gives the illusion of paying in the short term, sometimes. In the long run, there is always more trouble you're breeding by not doing it God's way. Now... I recognize that what I'm stating here might sound a little radical, especially for those of us that were taught the very common misconception that Romans 13.1 is stating we have to always obey government. Now first, I hope I was able to convince you from Scripture how that is not the right way to handle this passage. However, to also give a little extra comfort, no less than theologian Wayne Grudem teaches the same concept in his excellent book, Christian Ethics, Page 189, quote, The Bible never tells people always to obey every command of a secular civil government. Instead, Paul wisely says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. To be subject to a government in general does not mean that one always must obey every command of that government, end quote. So I hope for Wayne Grudem fans listening like me, you'll feel a little more warm and fuzzy about what you're hearing. And I want to make one more practical point here before we move on, and that is to state that I think some Christians that hold to an obedience interpretation of Romans 13.1 also seriously underestimate how convoluted, oftentimes contradictory, and honestly obsolete so much of United States government law can be. As someone that personally works for a federal government regulator, let me assure you, weird contradicting laws and regulations get passed all the time that just accidentally turn people unknowingly into criminals. Obscure little clauses and stuff, people just forget to update it sometimes, and lo and behold, it turns out suddenly a bunch of people may be living unwittingly outside of the law. I assure you, from personal, intimate knowledge of my little area of federal law, it is literally not possible to obey every letter of the law. You might think you are, but you likely are not. By the way, this is exactly why even honest people don't want to be audited or need to take a case to court or whatever. People have this sometimes naive idea, oh, if he had nothing to hide, why would he settle outside of court? It's because our laws are so crazy and so obscure that if you squint through enough of it, there is a good chance you will end up losing the court case anyway, even if you're 100% right. Harvey Silverglate makes an even stronger point in his book, Three Felonies a Day, where he claims that many unsuspecting, normal, seemingly law-abiding citizens can actually be turned into felons under some obscure law. Now. That's a little outside my wheelhouse, so maybe, maybe not, but I do know at least for the little bit of federal law that I am an expert in, the principle is very much true. I'm working on this one project at my job at the moment, and I probably can't get into too much detail, but basically, there's one critical piece of equipment that several airports in the country absolutely require to prevent airplanes from running into each other and crashing on the airport surface. My team just learned the other day, to our horror, that it turns out that this piece of equipment being used by these dozen or so airports to great success are nevertheless technically illegal. They were never certified. And technically, someone needs to tell them to take these equipment down, which would be catastrophic. And of course, that's why we're scrambling to prevent that from happening and make them legal. But that's just one anecdote of many. My point is, from a practical standpoint, 100% obeying man's law is actually impossible, which is why, in God's wisdom, that was not his command. So, in one sense, the command of Romans 13.1 is simpler. Respect your governing authorities. But, in another sense, it's infinitely harder, isn't it? It's the exact same struggle the Pharisees had with respect to Mosaic Law. Truly fulfilling the law requires the right heart attitude, and that can be hard to do when you resent the people over you. I return again to the episode I put out after the recent 2020 presidential election. How many of us political conservatives were disappointed in the election results? Or maybe the flip side, how many politically liberal Christians out there were tempted to resent Four years of President Trump just piling on with the rest of the world, with the jabs and disrespect. We are called to respect our civil authorities, and in a significant way, that is way harder than obeying them, isn't it? You can obey someone almost sarcastically. (laughs) You can technically fulfill your job, but find little passive-aggressive ways to make your boss's life difficult. But to be called to genuinely love, respect, and honor the authorities in our lives when we despise their political ideology, even rightly, when we find their personality distasteful and abrasive, when they vote for all the wrong, unrighteous things, when they're actively making our children's future more painful and miserable, that's not an easy thing to do. And yet, that is God's standard for Christian citizens. And that brings us to another interesting point in our key passage that I think is often missed. You may have noticed that throughout our conversation, I've been trying to be careful to not refer to government as a generalized conceptual abstraction, but rather refer to its constituent, personal, individual parts. In other words, I haven't been talking about government. I've been talking about individual, actual, living, breathing government rulers. I've been trying to not reference the state as a faceless institution, but state authorities, actual leaders, officials, people, in other words. And once again, that is because that is the way the language of the Bible is couched when it comes to this big question of how do I relate to government. In a sense, the question is already a little bit off because Romans 13.1 does not tell us how to relate to government with a big G. It tells us how to relate to specific government persons. Who we owe submission, that is to say, who we owe respect, honor, and love, is not to an abstract system. That's difficult to do. If you imagine a Capitol building or the White House when you're talking about government, how do you owe love and respect to a building? We owe our submission to actual people. President Biden Vice President Harris, your state congressman or senator, your governor, your mayor, your local judge, your county police officers, all the specific people that represent government authority. Real people are who God calls us to subject ourselves to. And that's very instructive because the issue of politics, which is not an unimportant issue, I've been saying it time and time again, politics is important, it's very important in fact, It's just not of ultimate importance. That's the problem people run into. But politics, which is just a question of morality and truth in a public setting, is important, and as such, it gets very emotional, very abrasive. People's tempers tend to flare up because we are discussing things that relate to our worldview, how we view the world, and really, ultimately, how we view God. That's the underlying issue being debated in the public square that we package together and call politics. Politics gets very ugly. That's why I liken it to a competitive sport in episode 8. Politics is, by nature, a very active and aggressive game, and the point is to win. However, in the midst of playing the game, we Christians need to be careful to not get sucked into the wrong, hate-filled heart attitude so often exemplified by the world. And part of the way God tempers our emotions is he is careful to point out that the issue of being subject to government boils down to real relationships with real people. In other words, when we think of the word government, ask yourself, what is the first thing that pops into your mind? Because I think if we follow the logic of Romans 13, 1 to 7, the first thing that pops into your mind should not be an abstraction. It should be a person. You guys probably all know the phenomenon of how people are just way meaner when they're typing something out in an email or on Facebook than they would ever be if they had to express those same thoughts face to face. I mean, I'll be the first to admit I've been guilty of that. There's a lot of things I typed out over the years that I sorely regret because I know I wouldn't have been nearly that harsh in my tone if I had to say it to someone's face, Or how about when you're driving on the road? People get so angry while driving, hiding behind cars, and just so mean-spirited. And you know they would never behave that way in foot traffic. If someone cuts you off while you're trying to walk to the bathroom in the office, there's no way you'd be flipping them the finger or whatever. The phenomenon of dehumanizing people is familiar to us all. When you forget you're dealing with fellow image bearers, the full brunt of fleshly sin comes out. The big G government is not some abstract entity that we struggle against as our mortal enemy, as libertarians like to often pose it. The government is a body of real, flesh-and-blood people that God has divinely appointed to fulfill a role as his servants to keep society from degrading into a horrifying, anarchist, lawless state. This is hard to accept, especially for those of us under some really horrifyingly oppressive regimes. But the truth is, it can actually get way worse. Look, Paul was writing from a context of a terrible government. Ancient Rome was not exactly a bastion of human rights and dignity. And yet, ancient Rome, without a Roman government, would have been worse. It would have been Lord of the Flies. Anarchy is not some utopian state. It's an environment where the depths of human depravity and cruelty give full vent without any kind of constraint. It's a horrifying state of existence. And governments of all kinds are provided by the Lord as a gracious restraint on human nature. Even the worst kind of dictatorial government you can imagine, I I hate to break it to you, we deserve even worse. It can get worse. It can be literal hell. That is what humanity deserves. And in light of that fact, government authorities are provided as a gracious constraint. Now, there are some very important, very interesting applications that come out of our biblical textual observations today. We've established that government leaders are servants of God. Their job is to uphold good and punish evil. And we determined that we are to submit to these government leaders. What I want to talk about over the next episode or two is what this tells us about American exceptionalism, our unique democratic-republic-we-the-people kind of ideology, and how our relation to civil government is extremely illuminating on the topic of conspiratorialism. But we're already going way too long today. Hopefully that whets your appetite for the next one. For now, thanks for joining me today on Modern Dogma. You can follow Modern Dogma on Twitter at Modern underscore Dogma or Instagram at Modern Dogma. Men Air er, God is Sovereign.